0: Well, this morning, as Taylor mentioned, we're on Psalm 26, so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there and trust that it will be an encouragement and uh, a blessing for you as we read it today. But uh, Psalm 26 points us in the direction of delighting in God, really, of the, the mission statement of New Life Church. Here's... Here's what we're trying to do here this morning. Here's what we're trying to do in your life group. Here's what we're trying to do in youth ministry. This is what New Life Church is trying to do every every place we touch. We are trying to engage people who are disconnected from God so they delight in Him through Jesus. The key word there is delight. That drives everything else. If there's no delight, there's really no mission. We're all about being busy, but we're not about necessarily the mission of God if we're not delighting in Him through Jesus. Now, I'm just going to say, this is completely foreign to me in my experience of church. I grew up in church. I grew up in a good church. What that meant to me, though, was not delight. What that meant was dressed nice. Sit still. It meant my it meant my mom leaning over from the front seat to the back seat, noticing that I've got um, some sleep in my eye. Moms don't ever do this. Licking your finger, rubbing it out of there. The most exciting thing that I remember happening in church was. Missy Ross, one January morning, Missy Ross went outside the church and on the metal handrail there in Montana, she stuck her tongue on the metal handrail. Some of you, you guys are from Oregon, you don't know what that does. Yeah. <laughs> Surely you've seen it in the movie or something. But uh, that was pretty exciting. I think my sister remembers the calendar date of that event, in fact. (laughs) All that to say that my experience of God was not one of delight as a young man. I had some respect. I knew I had to kind of dress up and toe the line when I was going to meet Him. But I didn't. My, My heart was not rejoicing because... of of who it was that I was going to meet that morning. And so I just want to confess that because I suspect that that that's how a lot of us are. That church is sort of a, a perfunctory thing. If we don't have something more exciting to do on a Sunday morning like a vacation or a hike or something else, then we'll come to church. And the engagement that we have with God does not necessarily lead us to delight and joy in who He is. So I want to, I want to read Psalm 26 and then I want to point you in that direction and see if through Psalm 26 we can't get our way all the way so that our hearts delight in who God is through Jesus. Psalm 26, beginning in verse 1 of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all Your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of Your house, the place where Your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me. And be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. And here in Psalm 26, we are directed toward a delight in God through Jesus. It doesn't use those words but that's the direction that it points us. Uh, one of the one of the best uh, estimates of why this psalm was written has to do with uh, David's worship of God at the tabernacle. Uh, the, the best that we can do in reconstructing kind of why why this song, why this psalm, the best we can do is to suggest that David wrote it. To be sung on the way to corporate worship at the tabernacle. On the way to the altar to offer sacrifices. So that the, the, the David and the congregation, as they approached the place where God's glory dwelt, they would sing this psalm. And in all fairness, if you're looking at it, it's, it's got some... I don't know, some uh, more difficult things. I mean, here He says, vindicate me, try me, prove me, test me. I don't ever want to pray that, frankly. Okay, I mean, that's just how this starts. And before I go there, I just want to, I want to ask the question, why would He start by saying, vindicate me, try me, prove me, test me? What is it about what He's about to do what is it that requires him to be vindicated? Okay, now, that's where the light comes in. Because it is at the moment that he approaches God, and when he encounters God, that is where his soul is most satisfied. Now, that's That's well established through many of the other psalms, and I'm just going to survey a couple of them to give you the idea that the presence of God equates to the delight of his soul. You make known to me the path of light in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. His understanding of being close to God, of of actually coming to this tabernacle, offering these sacrifices, engaging with the living God of the universe, is that that is the source of fullness of joy. To be fully happy, that's what he's, that's what he's doing here. Psalm 21 is written from the perspective of the king and the king says, for you make him, the king most blessed forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. To be in the presence of the living God, the creator of the universe, the king of the world, is the source of everlasting joy and happiness. Now, I'm just going to stop here. I've got more. I'm just going to stop here for a moment and suggest that this ultimately drives to the heart of our faith because either we believe this or we don't. We are either about the business of doing some religious activity here or we are saying the God whom we worship this morning is the source and will be the source of happiness forevermore Or He's not. And it seems to me that the battle that I must engage with with my own soul every single day is the battle to be happy in who God is for us through Jesus. So that I delight in Him through Jesus. That's really the work of the spiritual life. To be glad with joy in the presence of God. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none on earth I desire beside you. The most desirable being in the universe is God, whom we say is present among us this very moment. Psalm 84. I never did understand this really. In fact, this made very little sense to me until I really realized that it is the presence of God that brings joy. Because He says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of of wickedness. I thought, one day in church better than a thousand elsewhere? You're joking. But the reality is he's, He's not joking but it's not because of what they do there. It's not because of the, the potluck afterwards. It's not because of the way people dress or how they're nice to one another on the surface. What it is, is that it is at, in the court of the temple, the court of the tabernacle, that he meets the living God. And it's better to be there for one day. Then it's been over three years somewhere else. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. It is His presence that makes me glad. It is His presence that draws forth joyful noise from my soul. And so we, we must come to grips with this. Do we believe that this is a source of joy or not. Because I'm going to tell you, you don't want to go to heaven if it's not. There's going to be nothing there for you if you are not enraptured with the person of God. The streets of gold will be nothing. And so, this joy... This happiness, this delight in who God is, is the thing that's driving him as he's contemplating going to the tabernacle and to the altar to worship in the presence of God. Of course, there's more that we could do there, but I just wanted to give you a sample that his understanding of what it means to meet with God Is a happy, happy thing. And it's this happiness, this delight that is driving Psalm 26. So he begins with four requests, all of them related, all of them intrusive and uncomfortable. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I walked in my integrity, I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, try him, Try me, test my heart and my mind. So he invites God to examine him. The reality is, God doesn't need that invitation. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us He knows, um, he, he knows the very thoughts of your heart and He His Spirit can discern between uh, even parts of your body. I mean, He just knows you. But nonetheless, here He is on His way to the temple saying, I don't dare approach a holy God without being holy Myself. There is no way my heart will be happy if I love my sin and pretend to love my God. And so the the request that says vindicate me really is is an invitation for God to judge Him. That's a a literal translation of it. I mean, he wants to be judged and found clean is what it is. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity. And that's his initial prayer as he approaches worship. As he approaches the altar and the tabernacle. Now, he does claim, I've walked in my integrity and I've trusted in you. Here is his reason why he wants to be vindicated. So uh, to delight in God demands that we are inspected by God, that we are that we come before him with uh, holiness and reverence. Then he wants us to approach God and make sure that we are on God's Path. You don't want to come to God if you're just uh, on some other path. You don't want you don't want to come to God if God is going to be somehow out in the periphery of your life, and every once or twice a year you're going to pay some sort of uh, homage to Him. He wants to be on the path that directs Him straight to the Living God. And so that's what this section section is about. He, and this is reason. Vindicate me, try me, test me, prove me for or because. Here are the reasons he thinks that God will vindicate him when he takes a good look. For your steadfast love is always before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. The very thing that is the focus of his life is the character and committed or covenant love of God. It is God's unwavering love for him that invites his worship. It invites God's is God's um, judgment, His certainty that God Himself loves him, and He's going to keep His eyes always on that. See, that's that is that's part of the battle, isn't it? I delight much better if I believe God loves me than if I believe He doesn't love me. That's not very delightful. And so part of the wrestling that I do with my own soul is to remind myself or fix my eyes always on the steadfast love of the Lord. His covenant promise of love that He has granted to me. And I walk in His faithfulness. See, if some of this is, He he claims, and I just want to get this out of the way. Okay, He claims to have integrity. He claims, um, to not walk with sinners and all these other good things. And it's not as though he's going to the temple boasting to say, hey God, you should accept me because I have integrity. You should accept me because I have got my act together. He's he's really saying, it's not my faithfulness that matters here. I'm going to walk in your faithfulness. I'm going to walk this path Day by day, trusting that your promise is good, that your word is true, that you will keep me and you will help me arrive safely at my destination, delighting in you. And so his the orientation of his eyes and the, the, the pathway of his life has to do with the character and love and faithfulness of God. That's one of the reasons he thinks if God examines him, it's going to be fine. Then he says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of the evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. Now, what he's not doing is he's not looking down the street and judging whether that neighbor three houses down who never mows his yard is one of these people. That's not what he's doing, okay? What he's doing with verses 4 and 5 is that he he is saying... That he is committed to the path or the way of God. Now, I get that because there is a signpost that tells me that. It's Psalm chapter 1. It's actually Psalm chapter 1 verse 1. It says, happy, okay, there's our delight word again, or blessed, is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delights in the law of the Lord. So the first thing in the entire book of Psalms is your companions shape your direction. Who you associate with affects your heart. And he knows that, and so all he's doing is saying, God, vindicate me. I am choosing you and your people. And so when I say that he's going to vindicate him because he walks on the path, I, I want to let you know that this path, this is the hint that gives me the path. I hate the assembly of evildoers because... Uh, that's what Psalm 1 tells me. Blessed is the man, his delights in the law of the Lord. He, I mean, he's careful who he associates with his delights in the law of the Lord. Everything he does will prosper. The ungodly are not so. They're not like the tree planted by the rivers of water, they're like chaff which the wind blows away. There's two groups here. And the very last verse of chapter 1 says, But um, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's two ways. Which way are you going to be on? And what he's saying here is, God, go ahead and test me and make certain, make me certain that I am on your path. And So, part of being on that path has to do with who he associates with. Then he says, I've washed my hands in innocence. Recognizing that there is a holiness about the person of God that cannot be ignored. I mean, it's very—it's so easy to think of this term only in external terms. I mean, the Jews did this all the time. There were basins in the steps of the temple where they would have this ceremonial cleansing. They would wash themselves as though somehow washing themselves would prepare them to worship. And we always resort to some external application of what he's trying to get at here. He's not trying to say, make sure your clothes are clean, make sure your hands are washed. He's saying, make sure really that you're innocent of heart. And the things that you do with your hands reflect that innocence. I mean, clearly this is all about what's going on in your heart. I wash my hands in innocence and I go around your altar, O Lord. But here at this tent where God dwelt, where heaven met earth, where God um, expressed Himself to human beings, this altar, he says, I go around it. And I, I don't think it's simply a parade. I don't think it's simply a dance. I think this is his way of saying, I orient all of my life around your altar. You are at the center. And I am simply orienting myself always around your altar. I wash my hands in innocence. I go around Your altar, O Lord. You are at the center of my life. When uh, You are at the center of my life, my lips proclaim thanksgiving and tell of all Your wondrous deeds. I, I cannot remain silent. When your heart is happy, when your heart is happy, you tell people. You talk about it. You you can't help but have it spill out. You have a delicious meal and what do you do? You tell the person who made it, well, that, was, that was really scrumptious, thank you. When you see a beautiful sunset, it's just much better to have somebody there by your side where you say, that is really gorgeous. Because the proclaiming of it or the telling of it um, enhances the delight in it. And so that's what he's saying here. As he is centering his life on this experience of the altar of God, he's going to tell people. And then here we go. This is, this is why I think that this is the, the reason for the psalm. He says, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. We are on the, our way To meet with the living God. I love doing that. To love the habitation of your house. The place where your glory dwells. And David, as he's approaching in worship, as he's writing this song for himself and for the people to sing, he's reminding himself that the place of ultimate joy and delight is in the presence of God where His glory dwells. And that's where they're going. And so that's why, see, I mean, he's on that path. He knows that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates day and night. He knows that um, he's not consorting with evil, I and mean, he knows what path he's on. And so he says, "God, try me, prove me, test me, vindicate me, because I'm on this path, and I know that Your presence demands me to be on that path. It demands my holiness." And so that's that's the first and the second thing demanded by this worship of God. And and the third thing then that this demands, really, in in order to enjoy God, in order to uh, delight in Him, the third thing that's demanded of you is that you experience grace. I want you to see this. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners nor my life with bloodthirsty men. And here he goes again. Now he's back on this people I associate with thing, isn't he? He's back on this Psalm 1-1 problem saying, I don't want to, I don't want my final, end to be with them. It does say in Psalm 1 that the ungodly are not so, they're like chaff which the wind drives away. They will not stand in, sinners will not stand in judgment or the uh, wicked in the congregation of the righteous. They are not going to end up in a good place and I don't want to end up with them. That's what he's saying. So don't judge me with uh, these other people. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Here it is again. The, the psalm starts with this and it ends with this. This word integrity it is probably best translated wholeness. It's not something that you would be proud of. It's not something that you'd say, oh yes, I have great integrity. I mean, people who have integrity are humble, for one thing. But He he says, I will walk in my integrity. I, I will be wholehearted about this. There is a wholeness about me so that I'm not one person in one place and another person in another place. I don't have one set of friends that I behave this way with. I don't behave with church my church friends this way. He said, I am whole. My whole life is a peace. I'm no different in this one situation than I am in this other situation. I walk in my inte- I'm on the path and I'm walking there wholeheartedly. And it is a it is a heart thing. It's not a it's not an external uh, issue about how you dress or how still you sit or how loud you sing. This is a heart situation. My heart is whole. Then he says, "Redeem me and be gracious to me." This is fascinating to me because if I were to read this as one who assumes he has the right to stand before God on the basis of his integrity, he would never say, redeem me and be gracious to me. He wouldn't need it. But David, like you and like me, recognizes that really no matter how wholehearted he is, his wholeheartedness is not complete. Yeah, he's... He has integrity and he's on that path. But there are days when he's off the path where he has a misstep. Where he has trouble on the path. And so what he, what he prays to God as he's approaching this... In this final stanza, on the final approach to the altar and to the temple is, redeem me and be gracious to me. Because it is Your grace that enables me to meet with You. It is Your grace that enables my heart ultimately to be happy. I can't whip my heart into happiness. You see, that's the thing I mean, that, that I don't want to have happen as I'm talking about being happy in uh, coming to meet with God. I don't want you to kind of try a little harder. Feel a little more guilty that you don't get it right here. Because the whole point is, God, redeem me and be gracious to me. Ultimately, I am not fit to be in the presence of God unless God gives me grace. That really is the final word. And so he says, my foot stands on level ground. You see, I, I love this because in some regard, this is the benefit. I, I mean, the, again, here we are. The, the last phrase, the last phrase is, in the great assembly, I will bless you. He is, he is arriving at the, the altar, at the sanctuary of God, and he is going to bless God. Okay, so I hope that refrain of the song that Taylor's saying just plays in the back of your mind the whole rest of the day. That's what, that's what he's doing here. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. So that's, again, why I think that he's talking about meeting with God where, at the tabernacle and the altar where heaven meets earth. But the benefit of that, he says, my foot stands on level ground. In other words, I'm stable... Insecure and at peace. Because God is the center of my life. Because the joy of my heart cannot be taken away from me. See, the thing is, if if you think what's going to make you stand on level ground is getting your house uh, bought for some of you. Getting your house paid off for others of you. Getting your education for some of you. okay, Getting a promotion for others of you. Retiring. If there's something like that, then my foot will stand on level ground and I will be at peace and I will be comfortable and I will be happy and I will be secure. All of that can be taken away from you. And Here He says, no, really. My foot's going to stand on level ground because the thing that offers me the most joy, meeting with the God of the universe, can never be taken away from me. And so I'm going to be on level ground when I bless the Lord in the great assembly. That is what Psalm 26 leads us to. And I'm just going to, I just have to say, that's great, right? How many of you have been to the tabernacle? The temple? Aren't you glad I talked about it? What does this have to do with us, then, who who don't have a physical dwelling place of God? We don't have a place to go to that can satisfy our hearts like that. Okay, I started off by saying it was like church and how unhappy I was to go to church as a kid. Gratefully, it's not church. I I want you to think about this. What is beautiful and desirable and delightful about this tent where God dwells? Or this temple where people worship God? It is the tabernacle before and the temple later where God meets Human beings. Where heaven meets earth. Where we have this experience of eternity that we don't get anywhere else in this world. That's what it is. So all the time in the Old Testament, when, when you hear all this detail about the tabernacle or, or all this detail about the temple, and you're thinking, what is the big deal? The big deal is God is among us. That's the big deal. This is where we meet with God. I don't have one of those. So now what? I want, you to, I want you to kind of work your way through the Bible with me for a moment. Moses got plans for the tabernacle, Mount Sinai. They made it. God's glory came down and He dwelt there and He met with Moses. That happened all the way really with uh, some... Um, Problems, but all the way until David, when David built a palace for himself, and God dwelt in a tent, and he said, I want to make a temple. God said, no, your son will make the temple, but you won't. And God dwelt in the temple that Solomon built, until Israel rebelled, and it was ransacked and destroyed. And the people were carried off into captivity. And it was rebuilt in some fashion later by Herod. But then Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus is talking to His disciples and He says, He answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But He was speaking about the temple of His body. So all of a sudden, we had something just significant happen here, okay? It's expressed another way in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What Jesus is claiming is something radical. Something for which the entire Old Testament history of the tabernacle and temple prepares us, and that is that God is about to dwell with human beings. But instead of doing it in a tent or instead of doing it in a a, a palatial temple, he is going to do it in the person of Jesus. And that Jesus Himself is a place where we meet God. And so that's the unique part of... This for Christians, because we don't go to a place. We go to Jesus if we want our hearts to be happy. That's why we delight in God through Jesus. Then he goes on in 1 Corinthians. uh, The scriptures sort of unfold a little farther and says, Do you not know that you, church, are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. Just like it was in the Old Testament. But now it's different. Now it isn't this building. It is these people. You are that temple. When we gather together with the aim of orienting ourselves to the living God like David oriented himself to the living God, we constitute a place where God Himself dwells. So there is a sense in which I need to come prepared. I need to come asking God to vindicate me. Not because I'm going to to a building. In a few weeks we're going to go uh, outside for an outdoor service. And you better go there. Asking God to test you, prove you, try you. Same thing. And you better be on the same path because ultimately you're meeting with God's people who constitute His dwelling place on earth. But that's not the last little bit of it. The last little bit of it is here in Revelation chapter 21. Because in heaven it says, there is no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. The beautiful thing about heaven is that nothing can spoil this. You don't need to leave. You can have this experience of God that gives delight to your soul and it doesn't fade. And you're not tempted to sin and you ruin it. You're simply in the presence of God forevermore. And so, really, you could probably trace the story of the Gospel throughout the Bible, simply with God's dwelling place, the tabernacle, the temple, the person of Jesus, the church, and ultimately, no need for a temple. Because God Himself is the place where He meets with us. And so my my hope for you is that yes, week after week, you will invite God to judge you, try you, prove you, test you. That you will stay on His path and that God's examination of you will confirm that to your own heart, that your heart might be happy. And that you might experience His redemption and His grace so that as you do, you might delight in God through Jesus. But ultimately, ultimately, I'm not just hoping you'll have one good Sunday after another good Sunday. I want you to have a good forever in the presence of God. I want this delight that you're struggling and fighting for right now to ultimately be the thing that you enjoy forevermore. That's the invitation of heaven. That God's presence will be there delighting those who are His. And that happens as you come to Him now through His temple, Jesus Christ, where God meets man. You don't get to pick your ways to God. There is only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. There is no delight apart from Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved and find our way to this temple. And so I invite you to come to Jesus again this morning. Come to Jesus and ask Him to delight your heart so that you might be ready one day for heaven. Let's pray. Oh, great God and Father, this is, this is so contrary to the way that our preoccupied and bored hearts are. That we, we lose sight of the eternal delights that are ours for the taking. Because you have inclined yourself to us. You have designed to meet us in the person of your Son. And to be present among us when we gather together and to prepare us one day to be in Your presence for eternity. God, would You rid us of the trivialities and the boredom and the preoccupations and the sin that entangles us and draws us away that we might have this kind of delight in You. And Father, we will give You great thanks and we will tell of Your wondrous deeds if You will but be gracious to us. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.